Welcome to the Data Brilliant Podcast with me, Joe Dos Santos, Chief Data Officer at Click. In this series, we explore how data is reshaping and redesigning the future of our business and personal worlds. From business leaders to educators to public figures, we'll be joined by experts who will give us a fresh perspective on the world through data. Today, I'm joined by international bestselling author Jay Samet, a dynamic entrepreneur and intrapreneur who is widely recognized as one of the world's leading experts on disruption and innovation. As well as raising hundreds of millions of dollars for startups, Jay has pioneered breakthrough advancements in mobile video, internet advertising, social networks, ebooks, and digital music. Welcome to Data Brilliant, Jay. Hey, thanks for having me. So, Jay, let's get started a little bit with your start, your beginning of your career. A lot of what you've done has been based on this idea that it really uh, doesn't take a lot of experience to get you going on the things that you love. And you've got this great story about how you got started in the record industry. And I wonder if you could share the story of that start and how it starts to eventually lead to some of the ideas that you have on disruption. Well, I was lucky to be born and at the right age when the first PC revolution started happening. And I'd been on the internet from the beginning, and it seemed obvious that the world was going to go digital. Uh, when you're young, you don't understand timing and how long change may take. And so I built one of the first uh, million-member social networks and uh, built uh, an auction that the world now knows as eBay and all these things. And about that time, Napster came along and wiped out the music industry. It went from a, a global $40 billion industry to $20 billion in one year. So you can imagine what that's like to the companies. They're laying off people. They don't know what to do. And I got a call from the CEO of the world's largest music company, EMI, and wanted me to come in and basically be the digital future. He didn't know what that was. And I literally said to the CEO, I'm not a music guy. And he said, we've got 11,000 music guys. What we don't have is a future. And so when I went there, the first thing I wanted to know was they've been around for 100 years from Enrique Caruso, the Beatles, Pink Floyd. How many songs do you have? What do you have rights to? What territories? And he put his hands up in the air, miming as if he was holding a stack of papers. And he says, this is all the data that we have. And I was dumbstruck. How had they run a company for a century and not even know what they have? And the truth is, hmm. it, music was a hit-driven business. They just focused on this month, what's coming out. Yeah, we uh, recently had Imogen Heap on, and she was talking about the complexity of managing data and the opaqueness of that data. She said that she had five people work for a year to track royalties on one song, and they barely scratched the surface. This kind of endemic problem in the music industry seems to uh, really know no boundaries. It was even crazier at that time because I remember giving a speech saying, imagine if you downloaded a German artist from a French website using a U.S. credit card while you're on a trip in Japan. Who gets the royalties? Which collection society? Which country did the transaction take place in? At what rate? You know, et cetera, et cetera. And none of these laws existed. And so the entire industry was like deer in headlights until we could figure out how to solve that gap of data. 
And so how did you set out to fix that problem? So digitization was partly about the availability of data, but partly about the transformation associated with digitization, with making things available, data, metadata, all of these different things. So how did you address that problem at EMI, and what were the results? So we took a very bold step, which eventually the rest of the industry followed, which was, it turns out record companies don't have the rights to sell songs individually. Anytime you uncouple an album, you have to go to the artist for permission. And anytime you're going to an artist for permission, that's basically them putting out their hand and saying, what are you going to pay me to say yes? So we looked through everybody that had sued the label or audited the label, and we put them in one pile. And everybody else, we just pretended that we had the rights to do anything. Meaning that if it made money, we'd send them their their cut, but we weren't going to stop and try to figure out how to do this And so it ended up, we started with a list of about 85 artists that we couldn't have, and we put everything else into anything I could come up with, internet, radio, download, streaming services, all all the various things, and, and, and it worked. And eventually, within two years of meeting with artists and sitting down with managers and lawyers, we got that list of 85 acts down to five acts that were saying no. And, of course, they were the five biggest acts in the world, but uh, eventually... (laughs) <laughs> That's been whittled down. Isn't that always the case? Uh, you, you basically had one of the very first opt-in, opt-out uh, challenges on your hands. So let's talk a little bit about the this transition, because I think that this transition to digital, um, I watched your one of your speeches, and you had something very provocative to say. Um, the world's largest taxi company has no cabs. The world's largest hotel company has no hotels. And the world's largest distributor of goods has no inventory. And this idea of trying to reconceptualize uh, how how transformation disrupts and creates new opportunities, this seems like a, a really early example. How did you conceptualize that digital experience, that digital change, and what did it mean for EMI? And how did you communicate that to the stakeholders and, and talk about what the value would be? Well, the way I would communicate it with people um, – whether it was a large meeting or even, you know, giving an industry speech, is I'd ask people to just sit there. And this is, you know, back at the turn of the century, you know, 2000, 1990s. What percentage of your income goes to digital goods, right? And remember, this is pre-iTunes, pre-Netflix. And people didn't, like would just shake their heads kind of strange. And, and, uh, and I said, I'll bet anybody in the audience that the majority of your income regardless of what you make, goes for digital. Again, Hmm. they're looking like I'm from Mars. So let's just set some ground rules. Let's define digital as that which is not physical. So a mortgage isn't physical. Insurance isn't physical. Your credit card bill, your cable bill, your, you know. As we come into this world where we're going to be wearing heads-up displays and we layer a digital layer over everything, Everything becomes data. Mm-hmm. And data is no longer something that is stored like the Dead Sea Scrolls in a cave. It is a living, dynamic entity that, and I, and this is the core of, of, of what I try to get across, the only competitive advantage any company has in the 21st century is getting insight from their data faster than the competition. That's really something, isn't it? And at uh, 
at uh, Click, we've come up with a concept that we call active intelligence that really underscores this idea. You know, in the history of the universe, there have really only been three things that people did with analytics. You have to get the data. You have to make the data accessible and usable to find insights, and then you find those insights, and then you act. Right, so those three things don't uh, um, haven't changed very much. What has changed is the speed, and the speed at which people need to make the decisions. Not only internally, but when you want to help your customer make a decision, help your employee make a decision. And uh, can you give us a couple of examples of people that are doing that effectively out in the industry? Oh, absolutely. Well, I'd say those three things have changed even more dynamic in the fact that who's making that decision of insight has changed as we realize right. that the majority of of purchase decisions are driven by AI today. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I, I was CEO of a company that developed video on demand. We, we got three Emmys for it. We designed stuff like uh, Netflix's search engine. What you watch in your entertainment time is AI driven. What you see in your ads, you're purchasing all of that. So it's all data making those decisions that then impact your bottom line. So every engineer knows if you put bad stuff in, you get bad stuff out. But uh, a, a great example is how does Facebook keep you engaged longer, right? That engagement is their product. The longer humans are engaged, the more money they make. That is all by getting insights from data dynamically. And they track about 40,000 pieces of data on each individual. Um, I'll give you a very basic example. Uh, I was working with a company that wanted to take on Victoria's Secret. High, high profit margins and, and they didn't want to have physical stores. And it came down at the end of this thing. Who should be the Hollywood spokesperson for this women's undergarment company? Data is your best friend. Bring data to every meeting. Give it a seat at the table. And here's what we did. Without permission, we ran a bunch of ads online with every celebrity that you could think of and looked at the click-through rates. Suddenly, the data told us, and we tested again and again, that there was one particular actress that outperformed. It wasn't a superstar. It wasn't anybody at the top of our list. But now that we had that data, when we went to the talent agency to cut a deal, we didn't ask for that person. We said, who do you have? And they start with this name and that name and all these expensive names. And we go, can't afford that, can't afford that. And when they got down to who we actually wanted, we're the only ones with the data to know what it was worth to us. That's the same reason when Netflix airs a show, they don't tell the creators how many people watched it. Because if you know your Netflix best show, you'll ask for more for season two. Data is certainly power. I I, uh, heard you say a phrase one time, uh, data is your best friend. And often that's because data has no ego. Uh, It basically just presents what's in front of it without any kind of preconception. It's just a reflection of what is. We've all worked with upper management whose way of winning an argument is to speak louder. That doesn't mean you're getting the right decision. That just tells everybody else to shut up. But nothing speaks louder than the truth. And data is truth. Now, the flip side of that is I've seen companies internally use data against their own divisions in power plays. So they hoard their data and don't let others see it. And 
eventually those companies fail. That's really quite something, isn't it? That the idea of having the data and sharing the data is really what's going to make for your better outcome. So this combination of data availability and data usage and data insights, and then actually your A-B testing, I think that's really quite powerful. Some of the early stories of Facebook's uh, Farmville did some of the things that you were talking about. They would change the sky color in one particular region and see if it had any impact on people's behavior. Um, One of the things that people think about when they do that is, how do we do that in a way that is ethical? Meaning, how do we make changes in a way that we interpret the data that we're seeing in a way that doesn't kind of bring with us all the biases that we have about uh, people's race, age, ethnicity, etc.? Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, you have to really look at what are you putting in. But the other thing is, what is the purpose that you're trying to, to solve for? And many of those artificial things that separate us in life don't separate us in data. So race may not be a factor. Um, you know, sexual identity, any of these things. And I'll give you a great example. I was CEO of a startup that went from zero revenues to being acquired by News Corp for $200 million in 18 months. And our sole purpose was we realized people weren't watching TV commercials. They were skipping them. Yet people weren't engaging with online ads. How could we get people to spend a minute or more engaging with an ad? If we could do that, it would be the holy grail and every media company would want to buy it. And there was a series of A-B testing. You mentioned Farmville. That was one of our biggest clients. And what we realized that there was a moment when all people, regardless of age, race, income, were irrational about the relationship between time and money, meaning they're not going to put pull out their credit card to pay for Farmville, 98% of the people never did. But if they couldn't play anymore for that day, they'd wait for the next day rather than pay. But we'd give them the choice. If you engage with this ad, we'll give you so many farm cash or, or whatever the moment is. You know, if you're at an airport and they want to charge you $10 to get Wi-Fi access or engage with this ad. And by A-B testing and tracking different people and how they do it, We got it to the average consumer would spend 72 seconds with any ad we put up. Let that sink in for a second. That's a long time. That's really something. So because my my background in entertainment, the first thing I did is I went to every movie studio and I said, we will charge you nothing to advertise your films. But if people spend more than a minute watching your trailer, you're going to give us a $1,000 CPM, $1 a person. And they thought our boast was so insane, they all said yes. Well, we did the same thing with brand after brand after brand, where we were averaging $1,000 CPM. And that's why the company sold for so much money. Pure data, A-B testing. The case of having the data. You have the data, they don't, you make money. Now, I think that what you're saying is really powerful. A lot of people listening to this podcast are executives that are responsible for data and analytics. And part of the appeal of what you're doing is really you're a master for storyteller, right? You're able to articulate, create a vision for people. And I wonder if we could spend a little bit of time talking about tips for that. You, you know, one of your most 
popular books, most famous books, was Disrupt You. And it gave people the idea and principles about how to be um, how to be a change agent and how to make sure that you're communicating effectively. I wonder if you could take away some tips around you know, what are some key thoughts that you think you can share with people around what's key to driving the ability uh, as, a, as a change agent to change um, the corporation that you're in or the world around you? So I, I've my only three le- things other than running companies that I, I created was being an entrepreneur of, of companies like EMI that were in trouble. No, no one ever called Jay on their best year and said, Jay, can you make us better? Um, they usually go, wow, we've tried everything else. Bring in Jay. Um, but here's what took me 10 years to realize. And once I did, it was like the clouds opened in the movies and the lights came down from heaven. And we've all been there where we know we have the data, we have the insight, we know what has to happen, but for whatever reason, they don't get it, whoever they are. And you leave frustrated from that meaning. Why don't they get it? Why can't they see it? And then one day it dawned on me, whatever got someone to the C-suite, whatever got someone to that position of power, that's what they believe. So it's not your job for them. It's not their job to get it. It's your job to convince people that are stuck in the past, how this helps their future, how this empowers them, not challenging them, but empowering them. And the second you flip that, everything goes smooth as can be. And so I've had very entrenched companies that didn't want to modernize, that didn't believe in electric car, or didn't believe in, you know, whatever the big things are. And when you solve it from their point of view, and you have the data to back it up, change is, is the only choice. That's really terrific. And I love the concept that you have there that you introduce repeatedly around being an entrepreneur. You, your career is really um, uh, an incredible uh, list of entrepreneurial experiences. But a lot of the, the changes that can be done within a company are really about how to make sure that we tell good stories, affect this kind of change that's based on the art of the possible that you describe. And um, I once heard someone ask you, um, is there a way to identify the things that you could be good at changing? Um, and uh, I wonder if you could share your answer about, you know, how does someone get a little bit more insightful about what, uh, what they should be focusing on changing in a company? So I, I have a system called three problems a day for 30 days. It works if you're an entrepreneur. It works if you're an entrepreneur. Write down three problems in your life. Uh, I was stuck in traffic this morning. You know, real basic. But do this every day for a month. Three problems that you have in your company, in your office, in, in whatever. First day, it's really easy. Maybe the second day. By day three, you're like, I don't have any more problems because we live in a mindset of this is the way it is, this is the way it always is, and we don't think of the moment-by-moment moment challenges and inconvenience. So the traffic one is an example. There were three guys in a car in Tel Aviv. Tel Aviv has bad traffic, but nothing like L.A., Right, And it dawned on them that the phone company knew where their phones were. So if the phone company told their phone to go left and the other guy to go right, there'd be less traffic. That was the inspiration for the first company to do that, Waze. It was that simple. And it's those insights that change companies. Another great tool, if you want to force people into this, 
is try having internal hackathons. Anybody can sit in a room, make teams, have a good cash prize. The news feed that we like that makes us engage with Facebook came out of a hackathon. The like button came out of a hackathon. Okay, so you have to get people out of their comfort zone. And the other trick that I do, because so many people are intimidated by if I say this and they shoot it down or they think it's dumb or whatever, is I walk into every meeting and I have never had a good idea. I've never had a whole idea. I always phrase it as I have a half of an idea. And that's up to everybody else to add on to it to make the other half. And when you start with that collaborative as opposed to combative approach to change, it becomes less threatening. Because disruption, which is happening at greater paces, half of all jobs will disappear this decade. But disruption isn't about what happens to you. It's about how you respond to what happens to you. The choice and the power always lies within you, the individual. It's remarkable, isn't it, that uh, many of these initiatives, many of these big ideas are really simple. They're one thing. I need to help someone find a hotel room. I need to help someone find a ride. And it's the recognition of these small things that really seem to make a big difference in terms of, you know, stick to if you can just stick to those simple ideas. And on the entrepreneur side of it, those big ideas are already invariably inside your company. They may not be at the people that have a VP or president title, but if you're not listening to and keeping a channel open, you're missing all that free insight that you're getting from the new generations that are coming up. Their world is not the same world that you grew up in. And so the more that you can engage everyone in these changes, the quicker you'll find those insights. Um, I'd like to transition a little bit more to some of your personal history, which I think is absolutely fascinating. Uh, you mentioned this in passing earlier, but you built uh, the Facebook before Facebook, if you will. You created a site called AnimalHouse.com, and it was meant to be an online community for college, and you got yourself up to a million members in 1999. I wonder if you could tell us about this moment, the inspiration, um, and how that all came to be. So I'm in charge of digital at Universal Studios, one of the largest entertainment companies. And I know that young people are online. The studios advertise on television. They advertise on billboards. They advertise on buses. And every time, if you saw Jurassic Park, when they go to come out with Jurassic Park 2, they had no data who saw Jurassic Park 1. So they start from scratch and have to spend all this money. So what if I could have a captive audience know what their likes and tastes are? I mean, this sounds real obvious today. And start with the people that are online. So we had a brand, one of the most successful comedies of all time, Animal House. So I built a place online where college kids could have an unofficial college site. That, you know, what's the best restaurant, the best bars, all kinds of information. It was Facebook 10 years before Facebook. The positive is it was an obvious idea to anybody living in that world. So it became a magnet. So our sports, that whole thing was run by a guy named Mark Cuban. Yep, that Mark Cuban. He went Heard and sold him, yeah. his technology for over a billion dollars. I mean, the, the number of people that were part of this were unbelievable. But the flip side is, and I, I won't out him by name, but the chairman of the studio is like, 
why are we on the internet? Why are we doing this? And we were making money, by the way. Why don't we just shut this down? And so I had my, my, my moment and I had lunch with them and I said, I have a question. When we shoot our movie Xena down in New Zealand, our TV series, how does that video get to the studio? And he's looking at me like I'm nuts. And I go, when we have a movie in the movie theater, how does that sound come out of that, that projector? And again, he's really looking. And then my final one was, why is it? Then when I talk about doing entertainment and marketing on the internet, you think that we're talking about technology. And he didn't get it. Um, but it was really... <laughs> I was uh, waiting for that punchline, if he got it or not. <laughs> yeah. And so much so that I had asked for $5,000 to buy the URL from a plumbing company, universal.com. It was $5,000. And was turned down, which is why they still don't own that URL to this day. I mean, I, I, I've been on the front lines of, 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 of change when change was gradual and you had time to adapt. We're now living in an era of endless innovation that's faster than Darwinian rates. Hundred-year-old companies get wiped out by startups in a year or two. So those people that are handling the data... They have the gold. They may not be appreciated yet, but they have the keys to the kingdom. And one insight can propel a career. One insight can change the trajectory of an entire company or industry. Now, people sometimes have to be pushed into seeing what they're missing. Right. Um, another thing I wanted to ask you about is that you were uh, one of the first uh, pushers for a for a. Uh, a PC in every classroom. A lot of what we talk around here is around data literacy, you know, the, the ability to read and understand and act with and argue with data. But in the late 90s, you had this goal and you developed a partnership. You got uh, Vice President Al Gore on board. You got Bill, Pre Bill Clinton on board. And then you started to actually uh, make progress on this. So I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about how that happened and what became of your initiative there. Sure. So when I sold my first company, I've always big on giving back. And, and one of the things that I realized when Mark Andreessen put the face on, on the internet where it became accessible to everybody, I realized that now you had equal access to all of mankind's knowledge for the first time in history. It wasn't behind some, some lock and key for upper classes only. And I thought that the internet could be the great equalizer of opportunity. And so I started writing about this. I was a nobody. I had a little company. And one day I get a call from somebody doing the worst Arkansas impression I had ever heard, <laughs> claiming to be the president of the United States. Um, and why would the president of the United States be calling little old me? And so I embarrassed myself making uh, President Bill Clinton prove that he was Bill Clinton. Um, and I, I got called to the White House and, and he said, I really want you to do this. And I was flabbergasted. And then he, he had the caveat, but we don't have a penny in federal funding. And I said, no problem. You know, when the world's most powerful person asks you to do something, you do it. So I came up with this very simple idea. When you want to raise money for a charity dinner, you have a silent auction. You know, you have a bunch of people bid on things. And why don't we do the first auction online where people can bid on stuff? And Pierre wrote the code, and 
we had this big netathon, it was called, and voila, it worked. And by the way, Pierre went on to take that auction, and you know it is eBay. And 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 within 18 months, we had wired every classroom in the United States. Back then, this was before Wi-Fi. You had to literally pull wire without a penny of taxpayer money. And it wasn't that my idea was so unique. It's an idea that everybody embraced. And it has shown me that together we can solve any of the problems facing mankind. And if you combine some of these thoughts, right, the idea that the future is about opportunity for children and getting getting access to the world's information and this power of data, what do you think about the ideas that are being put forward to try and teach data literacy as part of a, a curriculum? Uh, we had Tom Vander Ark, who was head of the uh, Bill and Melinda Gates Educational Fund for, uh, here, and he was talking about this, about how we really needed to start to teach kids literacy around understanding and 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 even basic fundamental STEM capabilities to be able to process that data to be able to get the jobs of the future. Forget get the jobs of the future to get any job, right? So unless people understand this world and how it works, they're literally going to be left behind. And Jay, how can our listeners find out more about you and your work? Um, so I have two best-selling books that help people do this with their lives. Uh, one's called Disrupt You, and the other is Future Proofing You. Uh, and I have a website, jsamet.com. I don't sell anything. I wrote the books to pay it forward and help people um, be more successful in achieving their dreams. And, and job creators are what we need, and that's why helping people become entrepreneurs and intrapreneurs uh, is my, my purpose for life. Jay, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you so much. I enjoyed it. Our job is often to explain how data can change the world, but many leaders still don't get it yet. Why? Well, when someone gets to power, they believe their job is to do whatever got them to that power position in the first place. We need to help them see that data is power, it's security, it's certainty. Jay Samet reminds us find the problems, find your passion. Then begin the entrepreneurial and entrepreneurial journey to change your company and your world. Thank you for listening to this episode of Data Brilliant, brought to you by Click and hosted by me, Joe Dos Santos. Think about the importance of having and acting on good data in your life and in your organization to discover how you can solve your most complex data challenges with a real-time active intelligence analytics data pipeline that generates better insights and more value from your data, visit click.com, Q-L-I-K.com.